introduce yourselves? Reg Clay. And Norman G. And Norman G. Reg Clay, Norman G. It's a beautiful day outside. It's Friday. We're heading into the weekend. Um, yeah, yeah. It's um, today is Shucks. June the 11th. Yes. Yes. <laughs> 2020. Two thousand days before your birthday. That's right. And just a few days before Halloween, like, quote-unquote, real birthday. Yeah, right? we, were, we were talking about that, Norman, outside, because, you know, a couple of days ago, uh, Gavin missed me at caregiving. Right. <laughs> uh, because I guess the CDC was like, well, I, I think the CDC is, is um, well, they're scientists, and they, right. they want to make sure that the numbers are down. They want to yep. build it on science. So, also, he's facing re-election. Fresh, you know, since last night. Birthday, birthday party. And the bars, the bars getting a lot uh, more crowded. Yeah. And it'll be interesting. I, I've always, I'm always interested in the psychology, the psychology. Uh, every time I read on the news, you know, people are freaking out or, or they're, you know, let's say you get the, uh, the Beckys or the Karen saying, where's the mask? Or I, I deserve to walk around without a mask mm-hmm. or something like that. So it'll be interesting to see how people, as we congregate again, how we treat each other. Like, you know, some folks will be a little hesitant to be around each other. Mm-hmm. Some will be like, oh, you get to hug. And, you know, we hugged today. And we're all vaccinated. Pfizer? <laughs> uh, yeah. And I was like, hey, it feels great to hug you. And it feels great. I don't know. I, like, I'll ask you, Mallory, um, have you had any dreams? I've had some strange dreams. Absolutely. COVID dreams. Staring at me. Oh, <laughs> you had a COVID one. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I don't think I've had that one. Yeah. Or maybe I just remember asking about it. Because that's incredible. I love it. I, I had a dream. I didn't think of it as COVID, but it was the notion that our stations don't have pure air. And so suddenly there was a movement in the country to get better air, um, like more oxygen or something. And we got a system at the house, and it was suddenly like you had another lung, or you got your lungs redone, or something. It felt amazing. Hmm. And I woke up going, okay, that's weird, because in the dream I was going, this is the best, everybody needs to do this. And then I woke up going, is that, like, could we do that? Could we think about making the air really wonderful? (laughs) Not just don't pollute, but actually, what would be really good air? Well, I think that...
happened knowing that like a week later or so, bam, it was in the newspaper. Like yeah. big article about her and intimacy coaches in the newspaper. It's like, wow, we <laughs> we kind of have our finger on the pulse yeah. of how people play. So getting back to what you were saying, um, I just thought of the yeah, I wanted to be more than just your standard operating podcast or a show about healing, but it's about us. It's about the the artists who are on the stage. It's about the conversations that don't happen. You know, when we walk into a theater and then applaud because we saw a great show, um, we don't think about the actor anymore. You know, we're like, okay, that was great, and then we move on. But there are all sorts of other little intricate stories, some good stories, some bad stories, and we wanted to sort of bring that. Yeah, who they are after they walk off the stage. Yes. Who is that actor? Who is that actress? As I uh, interviewed uh, Royce DeMonico Hunt, he talks, H-U-N-T-E, I think it's Hunt. In any case, she's a uh, Korean-American actress, and she did um, sort of um, Olivia's Kitchen, which mm-hmm. is a variation of um, the Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh. In any case, I was so mesmerized by her performance that I just had to know more about her, and her personality <coughs> just blossomed, and it was something I did not see in the show. So those are some of the cool things about the world that I really like, just getting, you know, the stories. I, I think one of the funniest things is you pronouncing names. Yeah. <laughs> we should do a, a clip bit because I'm always screwing names up. <laughs> You're not the only one, though. Yeah. yeah. But it's because it's because a fun bit. At first, when you laugh, the very, very first time, I was like, you know what? I'm going to quit, and I don't know what the hell. I was in a fighting mood. But then I was like, you know what? It's okay. It's, it's human. <laughs> it's very human. And, and the guests are usually it pulls them in. Yeah. 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 And then getting trivia. Why did you say last? So when I got married, um, I had to think about what I've been doing my life. And I've basically been living a kind of minimal life. Like everything else is sort of secondary to my desire to be cool. And the fact is, unless you're very lucky, there's a lot of downtime. There's a lot of time between shows. There's a lot of what else am I going to do with myself? And I'd gotten in the habit of just sort of marking time. But when I got married, Mara is a very energetic woman. And so, like uh-huh. right now, she is, I have a block from Oakland Public Theater. I have a rehearsal block that's sitting in our backyard. The weather is, you know, tore it up over the years. She's just been with sanding it and then wood puttying it. And she's been, she's sanding it again today to get ready to paint. And I'm like, that's sweet. Regret, 
moment, um, Dad had kind of paralyzed me. And I was like, okay, so I got to shake that off. So I started going out and auditioning for more shows. And then getting nervous. I started talking to people about doing other things. And I realized that there was a whole shell that had kind of hardened, <laughs> that had become my life, that I was now cracking out of. And it was about then that Rich was like, well, you're going to do your show. Let's talk about theater. And I was like, great. I'm trying to reimagine what theater is for me and how the theater scene as I know it can better support me, how I can better engage with it. So having this conversation has been great, and it's great now when we added in the mix of getting guests in, well, who are you? Where did you come from? And, you know, I've known a bunch of them, but there's been a whole bunch that I haven't known. And that sometimes is a really exciting conversation for me, and sometimes it's a conversation that just humbles me. Like, I'm like, wow, you may not be like some big name in Bay Area theater, but you sound so secure doing what you do and how you do it. And I'm like, oh my God, so I'm getting this little lesson on a weekly basis. I'm trying to get and work on that. And that that's a surprise because uh, we, the very idea of having a guest on, it was John Jenkins who runs, um, or at least he did run, Play Cafe. Right. And he was our first guest because I was involved in Play Cafe. They, they're a company that they have uh, budding young writers, and I think they do 20-minute pieces um, of and musicals. That's musicals. Oh, the musicals. Right. Then there's the Play Cafe. cafe is, is 20, yeah. And the Play Cafe, they uh, have a playroom yes. of new works, and they've done my uh, a huge work of mine. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I just wanted John Jenkins on to sort of introduce him, promote what he was doing. Right. But also I knew that guests would also come on to Yiddish because they're like, hey, on to Yiddish, I'm going to tell my friends. Right. It's sort of a marketing thing, and I had no idea that it would evolve into a sort of, we would just frame it as a sort of... Um, like a quilt. No, no, no. No, no, no. It's sort of a, it's historic. I mean, we were oh, cool. capturing a, um, what, what was the term that you had? I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> well, it's an archive, right? Bingo. Yeah. It's an archive. Mm -hmm. It's an archive of what theater is, because we've had a lot of folks right. on who are like, hey, I've been out of theater for a while. Why right. are you talking to me? And I'm like, because I remember what you did. Right. And what you did is so important. Right. And you can tell us a lot about what that was. And people don't always know these little companies that come and go, oh, boom, or current events. Um, Ragged Room, um, it's Oakland-based company. They were running the flight test. The flight test has been taken over by Piano Fight. Mm -hmm. So it is now Piano Fight East Bay. Um, and, and Ragged Room, who was running the space, has decided to um, dissolve. Oh. And they had an, oh, David Stein was there. Yeah. One of our, one of the guests we've had. Yeah, David yeah, Stein yeah. was there. He'd been a part of it from the beginning. And they were, what they did a lot of, this, I hate the term, revised theater. Because all it means is you're making new theater. And that's just new theater, isn't it? But whatever. Um, they were dedicated to that. They were committed to it. And they were committed to a very physical kind of theater. Um, and they were also very committed to education. And so that, they had a nice run. They, I don't know if it was 10 years, but it was a good-sized run. And they just had an event where there's a photo on Facebook of all these people in a park. And you can tell that it's some event when they do the final bow, which, you know, we all understand that image. I was like, and I didn't know any of this would happen, so I'm like, David Stein, what happened? And then I, you know, I could read through the thread, and then finally I found something and read that didn't leave any details, but said that they were gone. Somebody's had that experience, and 
been so true for so many companies and people who've gone on to have hugely successful careers had these little things here. I think the first time I ever saw it was in the paper in the Chronicle. Um, they were talking to uh, Chewbacca, who had been fact whiner for the mine crew. And it was a big spread about Chewbacca in L.A. because he's also become a, he's an actor, but he's just like a minor producer. And I always say minor on a Hollywood show.
There's a clip of him. He's talking. He uh, grew up in Alabama right. during the 50s. And I asked him, how in the world can you be a liberal yet still grow up in Alabama and not be a racist like, you know, many of the other individuals? And um, I can find it. Charlie Larigo on Racist Alabama.
I started off in high school, and our, my theater teacher in high school passed us an Emmy for this show. I played all kinds of, I think the first role I played was a butterfly, uh, the next role I played was a sailor um, on the Titanic on Central Molly Bray. Um, so, not race-based casting, and almost nothing I did while I was in high school was race-based casting, including another, my uh, chorus director, and this is where I first learned this word racism, I got to grapple with racism. No, this is in Claremont, California, oh, down in L.A. Okay. Yeah, this is on the edge of L.A. County. Um, the chorus director at his place is directing Fiddler on the Roof, which, first, let's just stop and look at that. You're a Christian, and you're doing a play about Jews, but you're really worried about who you're putting on stage, i.e., not me, and you needed boys, you needed young men to do the show. There weren't enough in the church. So he started asking guys in the chorus to do it, but he didn't ask me. Well, they did rehearsals for a couple of weeks. He still didn't have enough, so he asked me. He puts me in the show, and I'm just chorus mostly. But uh, one of the one of the key songs in the show is uh, when they realize they've all got to leave, and they talk about the little days of Anna Petra. It's a beautiful little song. It is all the principals singing, all the principals and me. I'm not. Not the chorus, nobody else, just all the principals and me because we needed that other voice. So we finished a rehearsal doing this song, and I said, I just have to ask you, who am I? Who, who am I in this role, Billy? Who am I? And he just looked at me and says, oh, you're, uh, you're, you're, you're the butcher's son. And I was like, well, I'm not really the wolf's son. That's the butcher. That's the only identified butcher in the play. So apparently, on the other side of town, there's either a black butcher or one of these Jews and got it on with a black woman somewhere, and he kept his little black boy around because, I'm sorry, you can say I'm Jewish, but when I walk on that stage, the audience is going to see this. They're going to see my skin color. So that experience started making me think about what I loved, which was these other shows that I was being put in, no problem. And when I got out in the world, I actually didn't want to do black theater. I wanted to do those other kinds of shows. Well, I landed one place where I ended up with a black theater company. So I ended up doing a play for the black shows. I'm going, it's all theater. doesn't matter. So by the time I got here, I was already thinking, how can I play that character who the playwright didn't say was black, who the casting director might not think of as black? And the best example of this was I went to audition for, I fell in love with a Comstocker um, black comedy, which is a gorgeous play that takes place in an apartment. And the conceit of the play is when the play opens, you hear two people come in the apartment, but the lights are out. All of a sudden, they go, uh-oh, and the lights flicker, and they come on bright. And it's like, oh, the fuse must have blown. We have a blackout. So right away, you know this is going to be what the play is. And so the rest of the time, as they bring the candle in, the lights go down a little bit, you know, throughout. You know that's what's happening. The main character is an artist in London, young man artist in young London. Now... I guess when most people think of London, they think of white people. I do too. But I thought, why couldn't this be me? So I went to the audition for the show. And I had worked on, um, because I knew that wouldn't work, I actually worked on an island accent. Because I'm like, because I, if I see black people talking with a British accent, I'm like, what the hell, what, what is wrong with you? Um, so I was like, what, what, what would make sense? And this would make sense. This would make sense for London. This would make sense for the time period. This would make sense for me. Yeah, there are a lot of Jamaicans in London. <coughs> so I did that. And they were doing, it was a cattle call. So they asked me to read, thank you, thank you, thank you. Can you two men stay? 
and they had me and this other guy read with all the women for the women's home. The other guy was a tall, young, white guy. And me. And I'm like, okay, so clearly what I'm doing is not distracting to you because you feel like it's solid enough that you can put everybody, you can use me to gauge how other people are acting. But you are not seriously considering putting me in this role. Like, I didn't get a call back on that. I didn't get anything. I just got that experience. And I was like, wow. So I'm going to spend my career showing people that I can be stuff that they didn't think I could be. That's, that has been a part of my career since forever. Um, oh, for me, as far as black, you know, as I learned being in the Bay Area because, you know, I grew up in Washington, D.C. And grew up in Washington, D.C. back in the 70s was the chocolate city. Mm-hmm. Everyone was black. My teachers were black. The pastor was black. Uh, cops were black. Marion Barry, he's black. Everybody's black. So, um, and I went to Duke School of the Arts. Again, we're all black. So it was a nice comfort zone coming now when I went to NYU, the so-called NYU, and then I got an awakening that, okay, now I'm being a minority. Uh, But coming here to San Francisco, the Bay Area, I remember going to a black history function, Uh which was put uh, together by the district attorney's office. I've worked in the district attorney's office for close to 24 years. And they didn't talk about black history at all. It was just a political function. Here's why you need to vote for me. Here's what I'm going to do for the Kennedy and Baby Hunt. And I'm like, wait a minute. And I had to realize my, because growing up, I grew up a year after my Uncle Sam was passed away. Sure. I go to my grandmother's house, my mama's house, everybody's house. There's a picture of Dr. Sam Mm -hmm. right along with Jesus' house. Right. We hear uh, once a year the pastor giving the I Have a Dream speech. Yeah. To never forget. Person has to forget. That's what I thought. Right. <laughs> Not true. Nope. And I'm like, and especially being a, a you know a theater being person and one wanting to get on stage. All of a sudden, I found myself. I had worked with Eastern Repertory Company for a long time, and they gave me the opportunity to get back on stage. Mm-hmm. And my first role was role with you and I. Of course, they didn't. They couldn't hire me for the actors. It would have been you. So they opened the opportunity oh, right, for me. Yeah. That was the first time you and I met. Yeah. It was fate night. Which had to be naked, completely naked on stage for the entire almost almost the whole show. Yeah, but it was a black, it was a uh, a black story about a black man who's cheating on his black wife with a white woman, and he Mm -hmm. feels ashamed to do so. Right, and that was wonderful. Unfortunately, every other role that I had, you know, with Eastern or whatever, was a role that just sort of fit in for me. I'm a black person, but really, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really just a person. Right. It really didn't speak. And for a while, not just with Eastenders, but with a bunch of other companies that I've worked with, I'm like, okay, I'm coming in as a champion, as a champion for this, but is it my story? Is it something mm-hmm. that I feel proud of doing? And increasingly, it was no. Mm-hmm. And um, I started feeling a little bitter. And then good old Norman, he says, hey, we're doing a piece on Richard Wright. The dream. Mm-hmm. And it just, it's one of those things. I mean, it's almost, I came this ladder. It's almost like s- stepping on an electric rail <laughs> where it just shocks you. <laughs> it electrifies you. And long after the piece is over, and I've talked with Aquanetta, yeah. I've talked with um, a couple of other folks who are involved with the piece, mm-hmm. and even Richard Calavera was yeah. like, 
I wished it wasn't over. I wish we could still do it. Oh, yeah. And, um, and it got me to thinking about it really inspired me to write For Men in Paris. Paris. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, I don't know if you remember, but there's Richard Wright's 100th anniversary, and we had called him yes. around 2016, I think. No, no, I'm sorry, 2015. And you were like, um, I'm doing this thing for the library. You know, do you want to do it? Right. As a matter of fact, it was telling one of Richard Wright's stories. Oh, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Fiery Cloud. Yes. We, and it wasn't the library, it was a bookstore up on Solana. That's yeah. right, that's right. Yeah, uh, Pegasus. Pegasus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, yeah, so yeah, Colin yeah. Johnson, so Colin Johnson that you know, yeah. was involved in that as well. Yep. And because I had thought about writing about uh, Four Men in Paris, but then I abandoned it. Mm-hmm. And then you brought it back up, and we had a wonderful conversation. I think we were at Starbucks talking uh-huh. about it. You didn't talk about your concept or whatever. And that was really my first thought of us doing something like you did. Uh-huh. So I was like, ah, this is a great conversation. Why can't we have these conversations? This is something, I mean, it's one thing that I miss about NYU. You know, I, mean, I will never run into frat fraternities or anything like that. Sure. But some of the, like, after show parties that we had right. would be in a dormitory squeezed up a bunch of yep. teenagers or a yep. bunch of undergrads just talking constantly mm-hmm. about life and about theater and about Existentialism. Are we right. really here? Right. Is this bottle really here? <laughs> How do we know we're not dreaming everything? You know, get, get really wild, especially mm-hmm. when you have some weed. Right. Um, remember, um, who was the Asian kid who, Danny Boy, Dan, Danny, oh, yeah, uh, Hall. Danny, yeah. Danny, Danny Hall. Hall. Yeah. Remember he brought h- his weed <laughs> when yeah. we did the episode? <laughs> yes. So well, I guess we live in such different times now, so that's like totally legal, so no big deal, but yeah. You pull out, when you don't really know somebody and they just pull out some weed in front of you, it's like, oh, all right, it's legal yeah, now. Yeah. But I did want to say one other thing yeah. about the race thing, and that was, as a young actor, I also felt, since I grew up a lot in suburban, basically white communities, I felt like it was wrong for me to be playing these designated black characters. It took me until um, Each One Return, actually, where I started going into movies and teaching playwriting to recognize that as an actor, every story is unique. So when you take this character, you have to figure out how you can uniquely bring this character to life. What you have to bring to the character, what the play needs to be brought to life in the character. You have to find that connection, that link. And I had already been uncomfortable because I felt like I was faking it when I would be cast. And I did a lot of reading, especially reading playing gangbangers. And I started... Because of those kids, I started saying to myself, well, wait a minute, what if I, a kid like me, was in this role? What would he be like? How would he be doing this? And it changed everything, because I suddenly realized, because I also felt like I was, a, it was a little, I felt like I was a little inauthentic going in to tell these kids about life, when I'm like, I didn't live the life you've lived. I don't know almost anything about the life you've lived. Um, and who am I to tell you anything? And I'm like, well, I am a black man who has survived into adulthood pretty well and gone to college and done other things that you haven't yet done, but I don't know if you see those possibilities. And I represent those possibilities. And so that became a niche that any black character I play, I get to go, well, what is that part of me? Or what is, what is that aspect of that character that really drills down for me that is authentic, that feels real? And that's changed. So, yeah, all my characters are black. But all my characters are black because that's what the audience is going to see. What does that mean about who I am? 
am I rich? Am I strong? Am I sexy? You know, that's what the play requires me to be, and I just have to find some way to bring that to life. And part of that for the audience is going to be that I'm not. And, and I'll add an addendum as a writer, um, because when we get roles, bigger roles, I mean, I've had plenty of directors say, oh, they're doing Porgy and Bess. <laughs> right. They're doing Spencer. Right. As if those are the only choices. Right. And sometimes you can say, you know what, if I'm, maybe I need to make my, that's probably the reason why you created uh, Oakland Public Theater, so that you can produce the play that you want to do. I, I wanted that, <coughs> that idea that I already had, which was, because I started, the idea started, and it was actually Catherine, Catherine Seabarn and I um, talked about it in college, that we would do that same experience that we had both had coming up through theater as black performers, as black people. Um, isn't it exciting when you take this play that everybody thinks they know and you do it with a black cast? You don't change anything in it. You keep the same text, you do it with a black cast. Or what we ended up doing with Oakland Public Theater where we took this beautiful Ibsen play and put it with a Filipina, a Filipina mom and daughter. And it's like, it doesn't change the play, the relationships, the dynamics of the play, the cultural reality of your best friend who's from the other side of town. You know, those realities are all embedded in the play. Now what happens when you add this layer in? Well, one of the things that happens is we don't have to make any choices about it. Our audience is going to make choices.
too, a story to believe, written by, I think, Armand Chang, who was based on what Trump is doing and how Latino Americans are dealing with this. We talk about David Stone, who wrote An Appointment at Sonora. David's white, but he is affected by what happened. Right. I wrote a bunch of pieces. Ali Ospia, which is a Philippine play about a young girl who comes from school. She comes an ICE agent came to her class. He's like, hey, you get $1,000 if you report illegal immigrants. Isn't that fun? And the parents raped and did. So we are affected by what happens. I mean, George Floyd and Trayvon Martin, all of that stuff, mm-hmm. it affects artists. Like, you know, uh, we had Javier Reyes. We talked about what that happened. E.J. Gibson. Yeah. We had an interview with him, and we talked about growing up both Latino and right. black yeah. in North Carolina. Yeah. <laughs> the Deep South. And being called a, the N-word. Yeah. And that was a wonderful thing that he, you know, exposed to us. So um, when we talk about other elements, that's one of the reasons why I love uh, when our guests talk about how other things that are happening might affect them. Mm-hmm. Because it will, it, will cha- it will affect what they do, the, cho- the choices they make as an actor, mm-hmm. and the choices they make as a director. Um, it's one of the reasons why Susan Evans, you know, she is now in Charlottesville, Virginia. That's amazing. The same Charlottesville where you had the uh, the playwright rally and all that stuff. You know, mm-hmm. the guy who ran to the uh, the woman, who killed the woman. Right. Uh, so now. Right. Oh, exactly. Right. right. Yeah. It's interesting. I, yeah. She. And it's, it's funny how you know, like, and I remember what I thought Susan Evans. This would be the perfect place for her because you know she's a woman lesbian and Latina. You know, born African American, had been here for a long, long time. But to jump back into Virginia instead of you know being like yeah, and maybe there's some you know economic thing. There's also she was part of Tallahassee area, so they let her go. That's another thing that's happening. Um, well, artistic the, directors. They got rid of the position, right? Yeah, artistic directors are becoming a. Uh, they're becoming um, what do you call it? A um, non-essential. Yeah, <laughs> almost non-essential, almost obsolete, and that's a subject matter for another time. But uh, Susan would always talk about things that are happening out in the world and how we can bring it in here. That's why she loves Charles Schultz so much. Right. Because Charles Schultz, the uh, English painter, had talked about what war and how it affects the psychological and industrial. Mm-hmm. So talking about creative life that's happening right behind the scenes. But it's just an essential part of uh, our theater and an essential part of the business of an actor. So, yeah. No, it, it definitely. For me, it's it kind of a big piece of it is just personal. Like I said, I was going through a transformation for myself, and I wanted to see how theater fit into a full life. And I was already doing that from the other way. As an actor, I was already going, well, what's going on with me right now? How can I bring this into my character? How can I not try to turn off me when I go on stage? How can I bring that to the performance? So I was already grappling with it that way, trying to flip the equation and go, well, wait a minute. Let's say I have a life. Where does theater fit in that life? How is theater a part of that life? And so it's been exciting. So weirdly, this week, I have my kids. I, every spring, I teach seventh graders and uh, Nueva kids how to play play. We just did, uh, I called it a taste of Romeo and Juliet because we only did the opening, the balcony scene, um, a little, you know, a couple of little connectors just to give us some taste of what the show was. Um, normally on performance day, which is Tuesday, normally it's a full day thing, and I'm there into the night, and you know I've got to pack up all the crap that's in my cart, all canes and swords and vests and hats and all, and 
bouquet of flowers that I brought into one of the rooms, all this stuff. And so I ride with this, like in my life, in my world, this stuff is with me, physically with me, and it just stays in my brain. I got in the habit of taking a selfie. I forgot to do it. And I had another gig that night, modeling. So I go to my modeling gig. I am dressed up because it was my kid's performance day, so I dressed up for it. So I get to this modeling gig, and they're like, wow, that's a great outfit. We're going to pay cash. And I went, oh, yes, thank you. Oh, my God. So I sat for three hours. They painted me for three hours. And then I got up and I took a couple of pictures of what they were doing. And those are gorgeous. They're gorgeous ladies. They're on Facebook right now. And I'm like, this is my life. Theater, life in the theater in the theater of life. This is how that equation works in my life. You know, ladies and gentlemen, we have a, uh, I want to tell another story. And you, I know because I know we, you. We are getting a call, yes. <laughs> but um, one guest that we had, Sharon Connolly, uh, because we haven't had a lot of transgender people on. Thank we had two. We had Karen Dacia, mm -hmm. and she directed uh, Saul Raphael. And we've had Sherilyn Conley, who was a big part of Doctor in Theater. And she talked about her journey towards transitioning. And she made something that I knew that was a third rail I didn't want to talk about. Not that I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't know how to break it. You didn't know how to bring it, yeah. How to even yeah, begin to find the vocabulary. This is episode, I think, 100. Exactly, yeah. episode wow. 100. And uh, this is Sherilyn talking about her transition. And she talks about being an older trans woman. As, uh, as compared to the younger generation. And here's Cheryl. sure anyone who is listening who has thought about transitioning, um, that, that was a gift. It yeah. was a wonderful uh, juxtaposition. It was something Carrie did not want to talk about at all. She wanted to talk about Sir Raphael. Right. And that's cool. We don't right. want to force our guests to speak about things they don't want to talk about.
interesting and it's something that we've asked folks about. We talked to um, Tabard Theater, John Williams, Williams. John Rice Williams, and um, his company has already brought in cameras into the theater uh, where, you know, they, and they may do it even post-pandemic because they realize this is another, and it's, some, it's an idea that I've had for a while, mm-hmm. you know, because some of the great theater experiences I've seen have, and not just as an actor, but also just as a, uh, someone, an audience member, mm-hmm. you see something great, and then it's gone. Mm-hmm. You may have a play there, right. but that's it. Right. And I've always, like, read, because I know Chuck Pauly, before he passed away, mm-hmm. had an archive of the videos of every oh single nice. thing he ever did. Uh-huh. Maybe with the exception of statements, because the actress did not want <laughs> right. a video of her naked. Mm-hmm. Oh, well. Um, but video, why can't video be an essential part of theater? And not just sticking a camera at the back of the thing, but, right. you know. And I know that's a different venue. That's video, but I mean, you have face. I mean, you have not Facebook, but you have YouTube. Yeah. And you have Vimeo. Right. These are platforms that can easily be used. And I know I got into trouble because I wrote a piece through Digital Process, and I posted it because I was proud of it. Right. And Susan Ann was like, "Well, you know, you need to have the actor identify you. I need right. to have the actor yeah. signal you." And I did, except for one, so I have to take the whole thing down. Sure. But with Omnisphere, I got permission. To post it, and for some of the other things, and it's a great way of showcasing myself. Mm. It's like you know a resume for myself. I'm not right. Right. It's like yes, I'm a playwright, and here's my play, but also here's the performance. Here's what we did. Four men in Paris. It's on YouTube. So I think hopefully theaters will see with so many Zoom Zoom recordings Mm -hmm. uh, that's been done through the last pandemic that video can be a vital part of theater. You don't necessarily have to get into television or television production, but there could be some sort of an element. Yeah, possibly. I mean, that's it's a transition, and, you know, you need it. Everything needs checkoff. <laughs> Non-essential. If you don't need to do this, don't do it. And it very quickly became obvious because of the show, you know what, Greg, yes, I can give you, you know, I can give you this time every week because I need to be doing something else, and I think in the same way they've been being used for theater, I think it will evolve. I think that there are things that have come up and developed and evolved in the last year that aren't going away. So I do think that's going to be an aspect of it. The question I want to ask is, can we find that vital piece of what it is to have live performance and make that worthwhile enough for people to come back? And, And I think we can. But it really requires a sort of raising the bar and rethinking how we do what we do. And I feel like I've been doing that my whole career. So I'm like, I'm excited. Like, when people bring up Divide Theater and somebody asked me about it, and I was like, I I guess I sort of understand what you mean by the term. But honestly, when you do King Lear in a room not much bigger than this, a performance space not much bigger than this, and your audience, you are almost knocking your audience's knees you're so close to them. Yeah. yeah. You know, that it's, oh, except this is not Centerwood, but another space oh, like yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. When you yeah. know that you're in that space, you are doing something, you are affecting an audience in a very specific way. I think that is devised theater. We have to reconsider, like, you know, the famous thing in Lear is his on the hoop speech. He's, you know, yelling at the, the, uh, the raging at the storm and raging about everything that's been happening to him. He couldn't do that in that tiny little space. It would have been horrific. 
So instead, um, they had him muttered. He went to a post right near the office, held onto the post. It was it, there was actually an upright holding the building up, <laughs> and he went and he held onto that post and he sat there muttering the speech while the school stood behind him on a little step stool with a watering can. <laughs> now, what that does for the audience is you push that notion of the suspension of disbelief to a whole new place. And it's gorgeous. It's live theater. That's what it's about. So for me, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what the transition is going to be because I think it's going to be a lot of hybrid stuff for a while as we come out of this and make audiences more comfortable with coming back. I think it's also going to be like, I just had a meeting with Togo, and we're talking about what we're doing next season. Well, Jim is really in love with all that we've accomplished through Zoom. So, are we going to get back live? And are we going to lose a lot when we get back live? Because we were able to bring in lighting and sound and things that we couldn't always do in the script in hand reading that is, is typical, has been typical program. We, were, we had to bring in more to make the experience worthwhile on that tiny screen. When it gets back on a stage, it really needs to take a step back towards being a stage reading, a script in hand, news screen. And it'll be interesting to see what that transition is. And if we don't hold on to some of this Zoom stuff, I don't know. Personally, I really want to find the place where we get back live and in person. <laughs> but I also want to get paid. So, and, and I will. Can I add uh, just a quick addendum? I think even a greater disruption than COVID-19 has been the political and social disruptions that have been going on mm. with Eli Samuel Chivas, who was our guest. It's funny. He didn't talk about the uh, the living document when, right. he, when he was on the air. Right. I don't even think he thought about it as of yet. But And that was in the very, very beginning of was it 2020, or was it early? This was here, so I think it was January 2020, <laughs> even before the, pan the pandemic began. Mm -hmm. But there are actors and there are the designers or whatever who are like, hey, I'm not being represented, and I want to be represented, right? Right. and I'm not going to be the token black person in your production. Right. Even Radhika Rao talked about it, yeah. where she was brought on as the token Indian person or the token who was even asked to person, direct yeah. a, um, a piece on hip-hop because the white producers thought that, well, we want something that you feel comfortable with of color. So they grabbed her. And she was like, I'm not qualified. I don't know what you're talking about. Right. Just getting producers and people in power to hire, mm -hmm. to think about people in color, and to have a conversation, yeah. even an uncomfortable conversation, so that people are um, represented on stage.
met a new, originally we are installing a new set of standards and now we're going to see if we can make things work in a better way than they did before. Yeah, and I honestly think sometimes a, a conversation is what you need. And if you're honest in that conversation, there's another podcast that I had, I'm hoping to reboot it, Fat Black in the Bay. Mm-hmm. And we had a guest from Oppressor Stroud and she talked about, she was doing an interview with a white woman was dominating the conversation about black culture, mm-hmm. but the white woman was doing all the talking. Right, right. Because she didn't want to give up the control yeah. of the narrative. And that's a problem. That's a problem we see in life. That's a problem, oh, yeah. you know, all around. So when I talk about the honest conversation, and we had, um, oh, that's John Warren? I don't think it was John Warren. It was he, he uh, is the artistic, not director. He has another type. John Tracy. Oh, John Tracy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, hell yeah. He talked exactly about that. He Mm -hmm. talked about giving up the reins. Which he did. Yeah, Yeah. which he did. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what you need. If you want to bring in people of color, one of the last things we talked about with Charlie Lorigo before he passed away, he said, a person talked to Charlie, me. Mm -hmm. He said, if everybody comes to San Francisco, it's too white. Right. How do we bring in color? Mm -hmm. And I was like, listen, you know, if you give us an opportunity to tell our stories, me as a playwright, got stories I want to tell, and I want to bring them in, so allow me to tell my story. Correct. I'm an actor. Give me a script. Yep. And hopefully, it's something that I would want to do, because mm-hmm. it tells my story, or it tells an interesting story that I could be a part of. Yeah. Yeah. And that was the point that I was going to make, is that um, what you have to do is it's, it's starting to happen now because of that conversation. That's what my meeting was today. We are a diversity inclusivity work group and we've been going through those documents and rewriting them specific to playground and the fun thing has been every now and then we will point out that playground is already committed to a lot of and doing a lot of good things so that's great so he will say well i don't want to say this part well no you have to understand it's not just about doing better it's about acknowledging that what was being done what was considered normal was not sufficient, and you have to say that as well when you say, well, we do this better. You can't just say, well, we take care of people. You have to say, we know that there's a culture of not taking care of everybody, not including everybody, and we put in place some practices to not do that, or to make sure that we are included, you know, to make it positive, not negative, and that's been an exciting conversation, because more than once, we've kind of had to stop them and go, you want to pull out that little statement that says this is the bad thing. You need to remember what the bad thing is. That's why we're doing this work. But it is happening throughout the Bay Area. Everybody is getting their their statements up now. Where the you know where the rubber hits the road is going to be on if they come back and manage to make that transition or do they come back and just go back to what they were doing before. And I've seen there are I've given two good examples and one bad example. Uh, Prentice, you know, I told, you know, I contacted uh, Arlene Almada, really just to have her be on as a guest, which right. she was. And I was like, hey, I've got a play, and maybe I'm out of line, maybe I'm not in my lane, but I have this piece, it's based on Bird Called Rest, but I, I have Philippine couple, mm-hmm. family, instead of a, you know, a Jewish family. You know, can I, can I at least get a reading? And she was like, yes, it's a great idea, and we want to get some, um, we want to do something on Zunria. Okay. It should be a perfect idea. She could have easily said, no, not really, or I'll think about it. And I would have 
get me a little upset, but I would have been like, okay, that's fine. Yeah. Right? This is a Filipino company, not Filipino, so that's right. fine. Mm-hmm. But she opened the door, and I felt included. And mm-hmm. I was like, hey, this is fantastic. And that's, in my opinion, a good example. Pedro's Productions. Right. What Corinne and John Ritchie are doing, they did In the Heights, right. which has now become really, really hot. Right, now, right, right. Which is all about inclusivity. Inclusivity. Yeah. And um, I think the Latino community. Yes. And, of course, they produced Wong and Harris, and they've done a bunch of other things. And there are a lot of people who have been on stage for Pedro who now feel uplifted. You know, when right. Curtis Manning won an award for playing James Baldwin, you know, he was not just, you know, a man. And we had conversations with Curtis and some of the struggles that he's had from mm-hmm. growing up and feeling insecure as an actor. Right. Now he's uplifted. Yeah. All because of a theater company that believed in him, an actor and a, dir- I mean a playwright and a director that believed in him. Mm-hmm. And that's all that people can ask for. You said you had one. Oh, a bad. Well, the fact that Susan Evans left uh, was dismissed from Town Hall Theater. Right. What did Susan do? She brought in to our audience in, what is that, Hayward? Yeah, or Lafayette. Lafayette. Yeah. She brought in Dominique Williams. Yep who is now the uh, assistant artistic director at uh, Aurora, Aurora Theater, Aurora Theater yeah. who also brought in pieces that were uh, of people of color, mm-hmm. women on the verge of a nervous breakdown. We did Civil War Christmas, mm-hmm. which not just talked about Christmas, but it talked about the effects that the Civil War had in the black community and not just, you know, black folks in slavery who are just, you know, down as slaves, but it's the years past. Like Elizabeth Shepard played by mm-hmm. Janae Simon, the uh, brilliant oh Janae Simon. She brought to Hayward to the Douglas Morrison Theater yeah. all sorts of cool stuff. I got to be Bill Starbuck yeah. in uh, One Penny in the Shade. I'm looking yeah. at the poster board right there. A black Bill Starbuck? Are uh-huh. you kidding me? Yeah. But she did it. And it feels like she was part of the answer because mm-hmm. the community didn't want that. Yeah. That's well, part of the problem. And you have to recognize what your community is ready for. I mean, we, how can we help them? So I'm sick of seeing a little bit of that, you know, 
It's a wonderful book. It's a debate that James Baldwin, immediately after he came back to the United States from France, right. he had a debate with William Buckley. Oh, I know. And it's also on YouTube that he's uh, videoed and right. stuff. Right, but it's huge, right? It's like hours. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's very, very big. And uh, it's sort of, it's a precursor to conservative America versus liberal America. So uh-huh. it's not just about, um, you know, shit on William Buckley. Right. But it's a precursor to what the discussions we're having even right now. Oh, yeah. Regarding the yay, it really is like a feathering, it's like a feathering the wind. You know, it's, I don't, it's not even my show or Norman's show. It's the show of the Bay Area people, you know, people who will contact us. We had a couple of folks contact us and say, yeah. I want to be on the show because right. I want to promote this or yeah. I want to talk about certain things yeah. or whatever. My hope is that people who listen to the Yay, and our audience is rather small. I don't think it's going to get even big. You know, mm-hmm. it's Bay Area theaters. I don't know why anyone from Michigan would want to listen to us on right. the show. But for the smaller audience that we have, I'm hoping that we could be a repository for not only history, but also to promote projects. Oh, yeah. You know, if Plethos has something that's going on, and Plethos can say, hey, one of the things we need to do is contact the Yay. I think it's the reason why um, Central Works you know, right. Gary Graves oh, called yeah. us, Cole called us and says, hey, we want to sponsor the Yay. I've been listening to the Yay. I had no idea Gary Graves even right. cared. Yeah. <laughs> we interviewed him in 2017. Yeah. Three years later, I hadn't talked to him. And he's like, hey, I want to talk about the Yay. And I'm like, wow, what's going on? Because he sees that we can be beneficial to he, Central Works. Because yeah. they are very much rooted in Bay Area talent, and that's what we are about promoting. Yeah, exactly. So I'm hoping that other companies will think of us the same way. Other people will think of us the same way. The yay is only as strong as the people who come in, the guests that we have coming in, mm-hmm. and the listeners. You know, I'm thinking that someone like Jim Corn Venus, who, you know, um, Dark Room has closed for a right. long, long time, but he yeah. can at least say, hey, there's a retrospective of what we did, and it's on the DA. Yeah. Come listen. Jeannie Baroga, she emailed us says, hey, I'm using the yay as a reference for Philippine management. For this book that she's writing about school. Which yeah. you know, I'm sure you're working on. She yeah. is working yes. on, yes. <laughs> and it, it, it makes me put a smile on my face. because. And, and you mentioned her, and right now she's gotten she's gotten lifetime membership in Obama with Strength. And yeah. I was ah. a beautiful write-up. I think I just put it on Facebook a couple of days ago. Yeah. I'm like, wow. Yay, Jeannie, get going. That, that is just awesome. So, once again, it is, you know, it it can die. It can die within a month or so yeah. because no one's listening. So that's it. Yep. You know, it's just like any production. You know, we'll come in for as long as I remember doing one. Have you ever had to do a production where there was there was a revival? It's like we had to we had to remount it. You've had that? I've I've been involved in it though. Yeah. Okay. I've had that like once. We did Water Buffalo. No, that wasn't Buffalo. We did um, the Magic Button Theater. Mm-hmm. And it was just after September 11th. And we shut down, and then there was silence for yeah, a little bit. Yeah, there's a couple seconds, yeah. And then it was revived, and we did it at the uh, the Exeter Trailer, the mm-hmm. very first production at the Exeter Trailer. Oh, that's right. Yeah. See, talk about history. So, if people give us the power, give us the, uh, the I, if they, if we are as important as people think that, mm-hmm. think that we're important as well, I'm not yeah. thinking myself. <laughs> but if enough people support us, we'll be here.
Central Works, a new play theater headed up by Jerry, great and Jimmy Bartlett. Central Works, William Jenkins Theater, one play at a time. <laughs> All righty. Thank you so much. Um, we didn't even say that this is the 200. This is the 200th episode That's of the year. That's what we're doing. And so I was And uh, we'll continue again. And once again, thank you so much, everyone, who has listened to the Yay Music Spot. Thank you.